Hi, my name's Hudson, and I'm a geoholic. Hey, Geoholics fans. This is Nick with Bad Elf bringing another podcast tech minute to you. Wanted to give you a quick update about some interesting software that's just come out to the market. If you are familiar with the microsurvey software, they have just come out with a new uh, program called Field Genius for Android. This is a great survey, uh, traditional survey square that you can install on uh, an Android tablet that then can be Bluetooth paired with any type of GPS. It's a great affordable way to get to the surveying market. You are uh, looking at testing out a new survey software. I believe they offer a trial version on their website. Microsurvey, Field Genius for Android. Again, it works great Bluetooth enabled GNSS solution. Give it a give it a check out. It's worth your time, I promise. This is Nick from Bad Elf with another GeoHollow Podcast Tech Minute. Ready, set, go. Happy podcast day, everybody. Thank you for listening to episode 36 of The Geoholics, a podcast produced by and for geomatics professionals, also known as the Gaylord Perry episode. I'm all right with that one, but with our guest, I thought maybe a little more appropriate to go Jerome Bettis, the bus himself. I thought about Bettis. He definitely, uh, definitely came to mind. Come on, Notre Dame, Indiana, mm-hmm. the bus. It, it just works so well. Yep, I went with uh, the spitballer Gaylord Perry. And, uh, of course, I believe he won the Cy Young in both leagues, didn't he? Uh, you're I'm pretty sure he did. Me out of my baseball knowledge. I'm embarrassed. Yeah, yeah well, look it up. Let me know. Uh, please consider joining the Geoholics fan club. For every 20 bucks you donate to the Geoholics GoFundMe account, you'll receive a couple Geoholics wristbands and a t-shirt along with having your name mentioned on the next podcast. That opening number, of course, is the Moody Blues. We'll talk a little more about the story behind that in just a minute. The name of the song is Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band. And of course, the Moody Blues are an English rock band formed in Birmingham. Birmingham in 1964. They have sold, if you can believe this, over 70 million albums worldwide and were recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, actually in 2018. And you'll probably know them more for their hits, such as Nights in White Satin and Tuesday Afternoon. Let's give a shout out to our friends of the program. Thanks for believing in us and your continued support. Bad Elf GPS, you can find them at bad-elf.com forward slash flex, where you can check out their new GNSS receiver. And thanks to Dr. Nick for another great tech minute. We can't forget about Land Surveyors United, Mr. Justin Jaybird Farrow. Um, he has mentioned that International Surveyors Week is coming up June 14th through the 21st. He is the man behind the magic. I guess music was that VH1 show, but he's the man behind our magic, our music at landsurveyorsunited.com. They have all sorts of information, great resource for anything and everything you need, Lancer Bay, including the Geoholics. So check it out at lancerbayersunited.com. Nicely done, shoots. 
We also have Unifly, U-N-I-F-L-I dot arrow. Scott Ohana is the man behind the machines at Unifly, and they are your one-stop drone shop. You can purchase drones. If you have your own drone, you can, they can help you with uh, flight planning. They can help you process your data and help you complete the deliverables of each and every one of your clients' needs. And we cannot neglect Parkland College. You know, in these trying times where all these schools are online and everybody's staying home. Uh, I know Kent had mentioned that Illinois got snow recently. So maybe they're just snowed in and not COVIDed in, but it's Parkland College, their land survey program in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, They're still trucking along. Go check them out, parkland.edu slash surveying. Last but not least, we have Advanced Geodetic Surveys, better known as AGS. You can find them at agsgps.com. They are your one-stop equipment shop. They rent equipment. You can also purchase new and used equipment with them. They repair equipment, and they actually sell field supplies as well. So check them out if you're in need of any of those services or products. This, hopefully, is going to be our last COVID-19 social distancing episode. I am in Studio Double D. Big Shoots is in the nerdery, and Producer Jake is in the Beat Lab. Let's catch up with the boys a little bit. Producer Jake, what's going on, man? How's it going, guys? Yeah, I'm doing good. Um, obviously, i got a good good amount of time on my hands now, being done with school and everything, so I've started to partake in that YouTube rabbit hole that we've kind of been discussing in previous weeks. And so now I'm kind of just, me and my dad have talked about this for a while, um, and then now that I'm done with school and everything, we can kind of move forward with it. So I've been really just paying attention a lot on YouTube of all these different sailing videos. I'm not sure if you've ever seen these, but there's like these guys that can go from LA to Hawaii by themselves. It take them, takes them like a month. There's another person we like to look at. They're, they've been living out on this boat for 10 years. They've got a six month um, old little infant baby that lives out there with them too. So they're all sorts of just crazy stuff. You could just keep clicking on these videos, but um <laughs> I think it kind of goes along with just the, the YouTube rabbit holes we were talking about before with the, um, what was that? The magnet fishing, magnet fishing. And so it's just, yeah, it's just so addicting. Once you can watch one and it's everything now on YouTube with drones and all the different cameras that are, they can make it so um, like appetizing, I guess, like to your, to your eye, everything is, is shot so well. So some of these videos you can imagine with these big boats out in this crystal blue water. Once you start watching one, you could just keep going. So we're looking into it. Hopefully um, sometime this summer, we've got some um, ideas of going out to California and getting our certification so that we can um, get our captain's license and, and kind of sail around. But yeah, just um, chugging along here, um, enjoying that, that kind of YouTube rabbit hole, like those guilty pleasures. So doing good. Ryan, how about you? How are you doing? I am just enjoying this uh, coronavirus fun nonstop. I logged on to, I don't have a fancy barber, you know, that does Cliff Kingsbury's hair like somebody in this room, but uh, I just logged on to get a haircut and the wait was three hours. So I, I put my my name in at 10 a.m. They called me at one and said, come on in. So that that's just the world we live in at this point. And then uh, our governor, Deuce, he said all sports, professional sports are going to be ready and able whenever they're they're willing on Friday. So I'm kind of excited about that. Would be more excited if we could actually go see it without having that threat of dying. Minor detail, of course. But uh, 
other than that, just trucking away, staying alive, boys. How about you, Kent? Well, let me first start by saying that uh, producer Jake uh, failed to mention that he landed on the uh, Double D shit list this past weekend. Yeah, that wasn't a good look. I tried to leave that one out, but I I figured it was coming. So you've heard on previous episodes, uh, producer Jake has a bookie, right? So I sent him a text early on uh, on Saturday, this past Saturday. I'm like, hey, does your bookie take, uh, take wagers on UFC? And he sent me a message back. He said, yeah, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll take the bets using the, uh, I think it was the Bovada lines or whatever. So I sent him a message. I'm like, okay, I want to put, you know, put a hundred bucks on Bryce Mitchell, blah, blah, blah. I didn't hear anything back from him. I'm like, oh, cool. He's got the bet in, whatever. And uh, all of a sudden he calls me or I text him. I'm like, you know, just making sure you got the bet on. The fights are starting, you know? So he calls me like a short time later. He's like, what the fights are starting? I'm like, yeah, this, this fight is part of the, the prelims. And he goes, did he already fight? And of course he was fighting as I'm on the phone with him. And of course he wins while I'm on the phone with him. So I'm like, dude, you owe me 60 bucks just like that for uh, failing to place my wager. What the hell? Yeah, that wasn't very uh, responsible of me. I, uh, we, were out, like, we were out at the lake and I didn't have any service. And so I, as I was driving out, I got the text. Yeah, cool. Let's go ahead and send it through. And I figured, I looked at the card. It started at like seven or so. So I did the math in my head, right? I thought it was the, um, one of the, on the main card. So I just I was like, okay, cool. We'll, we'll be done here at the lake. And then like, once we're done, when I get home, I'll text, text my book and get this, this, all this action put through. So yeah, that was, I, I didn't expect it to be a prelim card, but now, now I'm in the hole. So, so lesson learned, never assume, right? Yeah. Jake's all of a sudden <laughs> done with college and he's so irresponsible. I know he's slacking now. <laughs> Who is gave up guy? after like three days. What the hell? What the hell? Other than that, I did, I did watch the uh, project 11 um, thing on ESPN about Alex Smith. Oh my gosh. That was, that was amazing. Amazing. What a great story. Unbelievable story. And to think that guy is still technically under contract and is considering coming back to play football. Unbelievable. I think Seeing he's the, the same age as me. And after that horrible injury, he was still working out harder than I think I ever have in my life. Yeah, it was nuts. It was nuts. But uh, that's about it with me. Let's move on to the uh, safety apparel safety share for this week. Safety apparel, first of all, has the best safety vests on the planet. Be sure to follow them on all their social media outlets. And you can purchase their vest directly from their website, which is safetyapparel.us. This week's Safety Share focuses on overexertion and ergonomics. So a little bit about overexertion and how ergonomics uh, is connected to it. Whether it happens at work or on the golf course, overexertion continues to be a leading cause of injury over all age groups. Overexertion causes approximately 35% of all work-related injuries and is by far the largest contributor to workers' compensation costs. So how does ergonomics tie into this? Ergonomic injuries are disorders of the soft tissue, specifically muscles, nerves, tendons, ligaments, joints, etc., and can be caused by excessive lifting, lowering, pushing, pulling, reaching, or stretching, repetitive motion, working in awkward positions, sitting or standing for a prolonged period of time, using excessive force, and uh, vibration resting on sharp corners or edges, as well as extreme temperatures. Overexertion can be prevented, that's the good news. Regular exercise, stretching, and strength training 
to maintain a strong core, all are beneficial in preventing injury. Here are a few additional tips when working from home. Plan a lift before you begin. Keep your back straight and lift with your legs. Limit the amount of time you spend doing the same motion over and over again. Take frequent breaks from any sustained position over 20 or 30 minutes. If you work at a desk, move frequently used items close to you. Use a foot rest and adjust the height of your computer. Last but not least, report pain, swelling, numbness, tingling, tenderness, clicking or loss of strength to your doctor before it becomes a full-blown injury. For those of you that work in the survey field, this is stuff that you probably deal with on a regular basis. So just some things to be aware of. Okay. Let's, I got to add something to yeah, this go for real it, man. quick. The yeah. overexertion sounds like me on the golf course, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. That was just like 99% of what you said. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. And then, <laughs> uh, as, as we're talking to all these survey guys in the field and everything, I know that old Double D over here has a, a fancy desk in his office that adjusts up and down with the push of a button. So he, it, there should be no reason for you to be overexerted. <laughs> yeah, I try, I try not to be, believe me. All right, our guest this evening, we're very lucky to have this gentleman. Rick DeBrule was with us. Let me tell you a little bit about Rick before we jump into it. First of all, Rick has covered auto racing for ESPN, ABC, NBC, Fox Sports, and other networks for over three decades. He is the TV voice of Barrett Jackson Auctions, and he has made mention that the auction is actually moving to the History Channel and FYI Network this year. He's got a master's degree in media management from the University of Missouri. And I did a little research and found out the mascot is Truman the Tiger. And also saw that a couple uh, other famous folks that attended University of Missouri are Brad Pitt and John Hamm. Anybody else? I'm not sure. Well, I got to say, Rick's on par with the looks of those two. Yeah, right. Let's Obviously, you need a new camera for your, for your computer, right? You <laughs> I know how to butter up a guest. <laughs> Something in the genes there at uh, University of Missouri. Uh, he's got three Emmy Awards, plus the Phoenix New Time Best Anchor Hair. I'm not sure who the current guy is with that, but I'm thinking maybe Corey McCloskey. I don't know. Uh, he's pretty impressive. Uh, he's inducted in the National Academy of Television Arts and Science Silver Circle in 2001. Author of a great book that I have read, Communicating at the Right Speed, 52 Ways to Fix your professional communication troubles. We're gonna dig into that here a little bit. Recently joined the board of St. Joseph the Worker. It's a, uh, a not-for-profit that assists homeless, low-income, and other disadvantaged individuals in their efforts to become self-sufficient uh, through quality employment. And last but not least, he's an antique map collector. So Rick, thank you so much for being here with us this evening. I don't even recognize myself after that intro. I mean. <laughs> Sounds great. Who is that guy? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, so great. So let's. Um, obviously, we had to touch on COVID nineteen because we're all kind of uh, we're kind of dealing with this. So I'm just curious, how are you personally uh, adapting or dealing with the situation? Uh, well, I, I live in a four foot by four foot box buried in a hole behind my house, so that you know no one gets hacked. actually. You know, we're really fortunate, you know, um, I, I've been working from home for a while, so I don't have an office to go into, although I will say my wife works at a hospital, so she goes off to a hospital every day, and God only knows what hitchhiking germs she brings home, 
-hmm. fact, today she she had a patient that was on the COVID floor, so you know we had to scrub everything when she got home. Oh wow! Um, but you know, it, from a work perspective, is where it's really changed. You know, I mean, I, I have multiple jobs. One of them is, for example, going to Barrett Jackson events. Well, we obviously haven't had those. Uh, I do other events. I do keynote speaking and all my keynote speeches for the year, for the most part, have either been canceled or seriously postponed. Um, and then I do training, communication training for people. And most of that has moved from being in person to being, you know, online. We're doing Zoom meetings and all that kind of thing now. So um, it, it's, you know, radically, you know, I, it's funny because I, I only went out on my own doing communication consulting work last year. I, before that, I'd had kind of a day job that I'd had for about 10 years as a chief communication officer. And um, I joke, I picked a really bad year to pick a, a, start a new business where my job is to get on planes, fly around the country and talk to large groups of people assembled in one room. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, nobody obviously for, we're really able to foresee this happening. So I'm sure it'll all work out for you. I'm just curious, how do you, as these sporting events start to come back, you know, racing in particular in this case, how do you see, you know, this changing that moving forward? Um, you know, it is going to be interesting. I mean, I think about the Indy 500 in particular. I mean, the Indy 500 is the single largest sporting event in the world for one day. Um, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the, you know, routinely year to year, they will have at least 300,000 people in one place at one time. Uh, in 2016, which was the 100th running of the race, we estimated there was about 350,000 and when you did the math, we figured out that that meant that basically one out of every, I think it was 900 people in the United States was at that track. And trust me, they are crammed together. Well, I'm not sure how you hold a race when everybody's crammed together quite to that degree. You know, right now that the race has been rescheduled for this summer, the question is, you know, will they, they hold it in August? Will they decide to hold it later in the year? At what point are people going to feel comfortable sitting next to each other? You know, that's going to be a big question. It's one thing when you're sitting next to your spouse or your best friend or the guy you came with. But, you know, I, I remember, I, you know, my son lives in Tokyo, so I go to Japan quite a bit. Um, and I remember a couple of years ago being on a flight to Japan, and we had a guy two seats back from us that did nothing but cough and hack the entire way. Well, I, I was annoyed that day. I mean, if it was something like this where we actually had to worry about COVID, Trust me, my, my, my concern level would have spiked off the charts. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all comes back together. You know, we look at, you know, now, now they're talking about a baseball season without fans. Will they at some point go, well, maybe we'll have a few fans. Maybe we'll ease it back. You know, I am a big baseball fan. I'm a season ticket holder for the Diamondbacks. I have been since day one, and I'm really looking forward to that. But the flip side is I don't know if I want that guy sitting behind me coughing. All good points. It's going to be really interesting to see how it all unfolds for sure. So you've spent a huge part of your life covering all forms of racing. Um, you, know, you mentioned the Indy cars, of course, Formula One, Champ cars, you know, even some off-road stuff and super bikes. Um, do you have a favorite, favorite uh, form of racing that you like or enjoy covering? You know, I, I always joke, if it's got four wheels, I love it. And, and it's interesting because I've even done some motorcycle stuff and motorcycles are not my sweet spot, but I admire them for what they're able to do. Um, you know, I was fortunate. I was the voice of Formula One for a couple of years, got to cover the Formula One championship around the world. Although I joke, we followed it around the world. 
we went into a studio in North Carolina and talked about Brazil and talked about Australia. Although for a time I was able to go to races and, you know, Germany and Italy and that kind of thing. When I used to work with ESPN in the early days when we used to go to races. <clears throat> but honestly, if there's one series that I have to say I really love, it's got to be IndyCar. I mean, IndyCar, you know, starts, of course, with not, you know, their, their keystone event is the Indy 500, but they have great competition at the course of the year. If, if, if you have not seen an IndyCar race, I believe it is the most competitive racing on the planet today for road racing, open wheel. The Indy 500 is an absolutely amazing event. Like I said, imagine 300,000 people crammed into one place to watch a race, 33 cars going around a two and a half mile track, touching at 225 miles an hour. And, and I got to tell you, if they touch each other, bad things can happen. It's not like NASCAR where, you know, they can bang off each other. Yeah. IndyCar drivers have to be incredibly precise. They have to be so good at what they do. It's, it's, I, I, when I, I covered the Indy 500 as part of the ABC broadcast crew for nine years, and even every year, year after year, at the start of the race, I would hold my breath. Because watching 33 cars go into the first turn at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway scared the living daylights out of me. I don't know how those drivers conquer the fear and have the courage and the kahunas to pull that off. It's an amazing feat. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, producer Jake and I actually have gone to, well, before they discontinued at the Phoenix Indy race. And... Uh, it's just like you say, I mean, it's such an amazing sight to see those cars. And I mean, I, I haven't been to the Indy 500. I was at the, uh, the Brickyard 400, actually, the NASCAR race, which was pretty amazing. But I couldn't imagine, like you said, seeing those uh, those open wheel guys, you know, going 200 plus miles an hour around the track. It's, uh, think, think about this. When they were at Phoenix International Raceway, it's a one mile oval. Mm -hmm. And they were turning laps there at 19 seconds a lap. <laughs> Think about that, a car driving in a circle, navigating a complete, you know, relatively tight bends and doing it in 19 seconds. Now, imagine the reflexes you have to have to be able to not just get your car around there quickly, but dodge somebody who's doing something not right ahead of you or pass the guy ahead of you. Once again, IndyCar drivers are amazing. It's crazy. I don't even know how you train for that. You know, it's a... I don't know if you're born with those type reflexes or if there's something that can strengthen, can strengthen that in a person. I have no idea, but you're right. It's those, those guys are unbelievable. Do you think that race will come back to Phoenix? You know, it's hard to say Phoenix for many years was a mainstay within the IndyCar world. Um, went away for a bunch of reasons. Um, it came back when Brian Sperber was the, the general manager out there and he was a great guy. I think he worked really hard to keep it there. They just didn't have the spectators, and I can't tell you why. Um, it wasn't. He he tried really hard to make it work, and he just just couldn't make it work. Maybe someday it'll come back. It's just hard to say. You know, everything's cyclical. You never know. Some just because it went away today doesn't mean it won't come back tomorrow. Well, I gotta I gotta just throw this out there because you were saying the IndyCar versus NASCAR. To quote one of the greatest racing movies of all time, Rubbin's Racing's Boys. <laughs> well, don't, don't, you know, I love NASCAR. I, I, I'm a huge fan of NASCAR. I mean, you know, when you t look at having, you know, 40 cars on a track and the bumping, and, and I mean, it's amazing that the entertainment value that they've created within NASCAR. I got to tell you, it's wonderful. And, and it's not that I, I dislike NASCAR in any way, shape, or form. I simply grew up a, an IndyCar road racing fan. And, and I mean, it's interesting when, when you talk about the Indy 500, because there are so many drivers in other racing series around the world, NASCAR, Formula One, all kinds of things 
who will ne- who say they will never compete in the Indy 500 because <laughs> it's so dangerous. Now, was it, Tony, was it Tony Stewart that did both in the same? Yeah, Tony Stewart was the he. So he was the Indy Racing League champion, and then moved over to NASCAR. You know, it's interesting. A number of drivers have tried moving from IndyCar to NASCAR, and, and with only moderate success, with the exception of Tony Stewart. He's the one guy who, you know, once again was the IRL champion in the early years, and moved over to NASCAR. And obviously, we know how successful he was there. That guy's been successful, like every type of racing he's ever done, essentially. Well, we don't want to get too dirty, but we can talk about his uh, midget car. Oh yeah, yeah. We don't. We don't. We don't want to go down that bad road. Yeah, yeah, Uh, With with the postponement of the Indy 500, do you think that that and the Brickyard will be almost back to back if if they do it with what they're saying now? You know, I haven't looked at what the schedules are for the rest of the year, and, and I don't look at any of the schedules that they have as written in stone. I think we're, you know, once they finally decide to come back, like NASCAR is actually starting up this weekend. So they're going to be at Darlington this weekend racing without fans and with a minimal number of people at the track. <laughs> um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to pull it off and have a great entertainment value and a great show. And more importantly, that it's safe for everybody who's involved. Because that's the big concern at this point in time. But so we'll, you know, let's get through these next two weeks and then we'll start to see how the calendars shake out. Yeah, that'll be interesting without fans. I got to tell you, I don't know if you guys watched the UFC this past weekend, but of course, you know, they uh, held that event without fans. And from a viewership, I thought, from a viewership perspective, watching it on TV, I thought it was amazing because you could hear everything. <laughs> like everything the corners were saying, the corner, you know, like the corner guys were saying, you know, you could hear the punches landing so much better. And just that, that experience, as far as the senses go, was so much better watching it on TV without fans there. It was crazy. Well, at the Indy 500, you can, you can hear the cars over the fans. So it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So side note, um, if it's Indy racing league, that's your favorite, that's all good. Uh, I guess if it's your indie racer of all time, favorite racer, best racer, your opinion, indie or not, or both. So, you know, we all have our heroes in life and I have multiple in the racing world. Um, and, and I'll name two to start with um, uh, who, who don't race anymore. But um, one's Dan Gurney. Dan Gurney was truly one of the greatest race car drivers of all time. Uh, and, and I will tell you, not only was he a great driver, um, he you know, was able to build an American car that won a Formula One race with an American driving it himself, which is a major achievement, driving a Formula One car that he designed and built and winning a Formula race in 1967. It, it was a major achievement. And I will tell you, having later in life gotten the opportunity to meet and work with Dan Gurney, he's one of the nicest people on the planet. He passed away a couple of years ago, but I mean, just one of the class acts in this world. You, you, you know, you want your heroes to be great people. He was. Uh, the other hero I have um, is a guy by the name of Mark Donahue, which most of your listeners probably won't know about. If you look him up, I think he only raced professionally for 10 years, but it was an amazing 10 years. <laughs> won the Indy 500 in 1972, won the Trans Am Championship, won the Can-Am Championship. He was amazing. What's really amazing about him is, is he was an engineer. He had a degree from Brown University. And so back before they had engineers at racetracks engineering the cars, he was the unfair advantage because he understood the engineering of the car. 
And he's the guy that gave Roger Penske his first Indianapolis 500 win. You could argue that Roger Penske would not be as big today if he hadn't had Mark Donahue. Unfortunately, he was killed in, an, in a, a testing accident in 1975 driving a Formula One car. Um, but truly one of, and, and, and a guy who could win in almost everything. He could, he, could, he could compete in NASCAR. He could compete in Formula One. He could compete in IndyCar, sports cars, whatever you put him in, he was amazing. And of course, two other guys I got to mention, Mario Andretti, who if you ever get a chance to meet Mario Andretti, he's just a wonderful guy. I mean, the fact that he was able to win the Daytona 500 and the Indy 500 and the Formula One World Championship, that is off the charts. Mm. You just need to stand. It's like somebody saying, I think I'll, I think I'll win the World Series and then I'll go play basketball and then I'll go play football too. Um, so he's an amazing person. I got to tell you, a great guy as well. I was fortunate. I got to ride in the Indy two-seater at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with Mario as my driver. Oh, my gosh. Now, at the time, Mario was 75 years old. I remember thinking, do I really want to drive around with a 75-year-old? It's like, absolutely, it's Mario Andretti. And then, of course, A.J. Foyt. People don't realize what an amazing driver A.J. Foyt was. You know, with the ability to win four 8500s, win in NASCAR, and to win the 24 Hours of Le Mans with Dan Gurney. What an achievement. That's crazy. I'm curious... These guys that have success like that, what percentage of their success is them as a driver and what percentage of that success is their team? It's everything. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 in any form of racing, the team is just as critical as the driver is. If the team isn't firing on all cylinders, um, you know, you, you've got a problem. And, and you realize you also have to have engineers who build you the right car. There's a lot of great drivers who never had the right car and there's a lot of good drivers who had the right car, but didn't have the right team. It's like all those elements have to come together. Gotcha, gotcha. Let's move on to Barrett Jackson. Talk about that just a little bit. Has that schedule been affected already as a result of COVID? So uh, the, the, there are four Barrett Jackson auctions every year. There's Scottsdale, Palm Beach, uh, what they call the Northeast, which is in Connecticut, and then Las Vegas. Uh, Scottsdale happened as normal because it was in January. Didn't realize where things were going at that point. The second auction was supposed to be Palm Beach, which would have been held in April. Pretty early on, they figured out the problem, and so they were able to postpone that one to October. Uh, the Connecticut date, they kept looking at trying to move it around, and then finally, I think last week, they just decided they were going to can- cancel completely the Connecticut auction for this year. Wow. So right now, we have two auctions left on the books. One is the Las Vegas auction, which is scheduled for September. And then the um, moved Palm Beach auction, which is now scheduled for October. But this week, Barrett Jackson is doing its first of the modern era online auction. So they're moving from just doing it in person to creating an online auction. And there have been some other companies that have done it successfully, but Barrett Jackson has been wanting to do it for a while and just moved their plans up. So, uh, and we're going to do some TV associated with it, with it as well. So it'll be fun. Yeah, that's where I was going with that, actually, because... I was going to say that, you know, like something like Barrett Jackson is just is something that could be done virtually to a certain degree anyways and still have some success. Obviously, they're not going to have the revenue from, you know, all the people, you know, physically being at one of their events, but they could still sell cars, you know? Yeah. I mean, if someone has not been to the Barrett Jackson collector car auction in Scottsdale, if you have any interest in cars, however slight, it is one of the greatest car events on the planet. I, I sometimes joke 
it's not a three ring circus, it's a 12 ring circus. I mean, there's an auction going on in the center, but there's all this other stuff around it. There's ride and drives and vendor areas and cars on it. I mean, this year, I think we had 1900 cars on site that were sold. All but one, no reserve, meaning, you know, they were all gonna sell. And, and it's the greatest car show on the planet. I mean, it's just one of those things that, that it, if, if, you're, if you're even slightly interested in cars, you got to go to it. And I know people, I have a good friend of mine who knows nothing about cars. He doesn't care about cars at all. And he loves going to Barrett-Jackson Scottsdale just to watch the people. Absolutely. Yeah, great people watching on top of, like you said, an unbelievable car show. So I believe that Barrett Jackson is going to do more online work as time goes along, but I think the, the live events will still be the, the centerpiece of what they do. For sure. For sure. What's, um, how long have you been doing Barrett Jackson? Um, well, I attended my first Barrett Jackson in probably 1980. Uh, in fact, I have a ticket. It's not far away from me right here where I, I actually have a ticket that I somehow put into a book from the 1980 Barrett Jackson collector car auction. Um, but I started doing the TV work for it in 2003. So oh I'm 17 or 18 years into it now. And, and it's, you know, the fact that, you know, I don't know, but everybody's got, you know, their own personal story and their background. I grew up a car geek for no reason other than I just thought cars were cool. My family wasn't into cars. My dad, no brothers, no, that, that liked cars, no friends that liked cars. I just, I was the kid that had the car magazine tucked in my binder the whole time. In high school, I took two hours of auto shop every day. I worked my way through college as a mechanic at Sears Automotive. The fact that somebody pays me to stand around and talk about cars is the biggest scam on the planet. <laughs> I got to tell you. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost criminal to a degree, but don't tell the people when I'm negotiating my contract. Because <laughs> it's so much fun. I mean, once again, I grew up with these cars. I, when I was at Sears Automotive, I was working on these cars. Huh. And now they're rolling across the block and I can't believe what they sell for, you know. But, but to be able to have somebody pay me and put me in the prime seat to be able to talk about them is just a blast. And it's like they say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? Exactly. Well, I got I to gotta throw this one around the horn. We'll go to Rick last on this. Everybody's dream car. Uh, I'll start it off. Plymouth Superbird. What about you, Jake? It's got to be the uh, Cobra Super Snake for me. Ooh, going to the top. Espe yeah, especially the one that sold at Barrett Jackson a couple years ago. Are you talking the original Cobra Super Snake or the Yeah, the original, yeah. Mm, yeah, so what, what, uh, a couple years ago, one had sold for about five and a half million at Barrett Jackson. What year was that? Like a 70 or six, late 60s? No, it's a mid-60s. It, it, and okay. that, was, that was one of... Um, I believe three built, and that was the one that personally belonged to Carol Shelby. Yeah, that one was was pretty was something. Um, but yeah, got to be that. Amazing. What about you, Kent? Uh, I don't know. There's so many. I one car that I hope someday I'll own would be a '68 uh, Charger RT. Those are all great choices. Like I'm impressed that they're all old cars no one's gone into the modern supercar hypercar era so that's pretty impressive yeah yeah well yeah i uh, wouldn't mind a mclaren p1 too so if we want to talk <laughs> hypercar for me of a car man yeah my problem is you know i I'm, I'm like whatever drives in front of me is the car i love today and and i've but having said that, you know, there's a few I can narrow it down to. Um, if there's an ultimate car, it's probably a Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing from 1955. 
I mean, one of the most spectacular cars ever designed. And what's interesting about that car is they actually designed the racing version first and then the street version. So oftentimes you have a street car that then gets converted for racing. In this case, they built a racing car and converted it for the street. The technology associated, the direct fuel injection, the way that car was able to operate in its day. And then you look at the things that, that look at all the cars that use the styling touches from that car. So take a look at the Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing and then look at the 1957 58 Corvette headlights. Hmm. Guess where that came from? Interesting. Uh, look at the Gullwing doors. How many times have we seen Gullwing doors incorporated things? That car was just so iconic in so many ways. Now, having said that, I mean, I'd love to have a 68 Shelby GT500. You know, I'd love to have just for fun a DeLorean. You know, I'd love to have a Porsche Modern, not Porsche 918. I love the BMW i8, the looks of that thing, a brand new NSX. But I will tell you that out in my garage right now is, now I, I like cars for two reasons, speed and beauty. And in my garage right now is a car that has neither of those two things. <laughs> I own a 1958 BMW Isetta. <laughs> And if you don't know what the IZ is, look it up. Uh, it's, most people remember it because of Urkel, who was on some TV show that I never watched. Family Matters. Family Matters, yes. Had one. It's one, it was built by BMW between 58 and 1963. It has one door. You can comfortably see two people in it. We, did, we actually had three people in it this past weekend and during a little car cruise we were at. Has a one-cylinder motor, 13 horsepower, on a good day, you might get 48 miles an hour out of it. It's got three wheels, right? Well, the British version had three. The, the German and the American versions have four wheels, but they're oh, close awesome. together at the back. Oh. I always joke that you know, our, the, the American version is so much more stable than the British version because you know, we have two <laughs> wheels that are, that are a foot and a half apart and theirs had one wheel. So. Oh, but but it's, it's, it's a fun story. When I was in high school, our, our high school principal had one. It was painted in the school colors. He would bring it to school. It was the unofficial school mascot. At every football game, he'd bring it out of the football game. Every time we'd score a touchdown, he'd pop a cheerleader out the top, and they'd drive around the track. She'd wave a flag. So I always knew about the cars, liked them, was not obsessed by them. But my wife and I ended up buying this one because we bought it from the school principal. Oh, my gosh. Full circle. Had 47 years after, after he bought it, we bought it from him. Wow. So I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a fairly obvious question. And that is, if you were to pick, let's say, I mean, you've covered so many different things and I'm sure have seen and witnessed so many amazing things. If you could pick two iconic moments uh, that, that you've covered, what would they be? In racing? Yeah. Um, in racing, the first one I would say was um, the 2016 Indy 500 when Alexander Rossi won the 100th running of the race. It's one of the greatest stories ever, um, how he won it. But once again, he's a rookie. He'd never raced at the track before. It's the 100th running. Everybody wanted to win it. And he runs out of gas on the last, runs out of fuel in the very last lap and manages to coast over the finish line. And I, I actually do an entire keynote presentation built around the story of the Indy 500 that year because it's so amazing how his team communicated him across the finish line. It's absolutely amazing. So, so that's number one to me. That's an absolutely amazing thing. 
The, the other one which I witnessed was years ago, there was the Mickey Thompson Off-Road Stadium Challenge. And what they would do is they would take a stadium, like, you know, you could do it at, at Bankland Ballpark or Chase Field, whatever it's called now. But this one was at the Rose Bowl. They bring in, bring in all this dirt, and they would have a series of races. And they were they had trucks, they had dune buggies, motor motocross, all these different things that would race. And at the very one of the races was these trucks, like these off-road trucks. And you got to remember, it's all crammed into the Rose Bowl. And 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 the amazing thing is that people are on their feet, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're loving it. The top speed these guys ever got was 28 miles an hour. They never got faster than 28 miles an hour. But so so they run you know like a I think it was a maybe a four lap race or 10 lap race, very short race. Um, a guy named Robbie Gordon, who later went on to become an IndyCar driver, NASCAR driver, and Walker Evans, the two of them were duking it out. Walker Evans is slightly ahead, or Robbie Gordon is slightly ahead. Walker Evans hits him and Robbie goes sideways. And Robbie realizes that if he takes his foot off the throttle, Walker will just push him out of the way and win the race. Walker realizes if he takes his foot off the throttle, Robbie will straighten out and win the race. So both of them keep their foot on the throttle. The wheels are spinning, dirt is flying into the stands, and Walker pushes Robbie across the finish line sideways. Oh it's just one of those great moments. And once again, they're only going like 25 miles an hour, and the people are on their feet screaming and yelling. It's just one of those killer moments of time. That's awesome. You probably still get chills talking about it. I do, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine you've probably seen some... Uh, some unfortunate things as well. Would that be fatal accidents and things of that nature? Yeah, you know, I, the very first network race I ever did, which was for USA Cable, which was in 1987, there was a fatality in it. And it was a, just a brutal reminder on day one, you know, that these drivers, um, it, as safe as it has become, even today, you know, it, there's a risk when you're driving, especially at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, driving 230 miles an hour, 225 miles an hour, you know, I mean, just a couple of years ago, we, this gentleman by the name of Justin Wilson, great IndyCar driver, more importantly, one of the nicest people on the planet, just a great guy. Um, you know, he was killed at Pocono when a piece came off a car and hit him in the helmet. And it's just so, so tragic on every level. And, you know, I, I just, when these drivers get in their car, especially Indy cars, because that's where the greatest risk is, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I say a small prayer at the very beginning of every Indy 500 because of it. Yeah, were you there, was it uh, Dan Weldon, right, at Indy? Dan Weldon died in Las Vegas. Oh, it was in Las Vegas, okay. And Dan and I actually were friends. Dan and I share the same birthday. Wow. So we would always say, you know, what did you do on your birthday this year? We'd chat. Um, I was part of the ABC broadcast crew that day. Dan was doing a one-off race. He'd won the Indy 500 um, and was doing that race that year. And I was the last person to interview Dan before he got in his car. Oh my gosh. So, you know, it's, I, I had known Dan when he was running in Formula Atlantics and the lower series, the, the Indy Light series and those things. And you know, Dan was just such a wonderful, wonderful guy. Very intense, very, I mean, he was very nice. He seemed like such a happy-go-lucky guy, but he wasn't. He was super intense. He was just very friendly. Um, but yeah, that, you know, once again, I'm constantly reminded about the dangers associated with racing. When I think about guys like Dan Weldon or Justin Wilson or, you know, a host of other people, names I can name. Yeah. It's amazing. to think those guys, I mean, they don't think twice, right. When they get in those cars, they can't, I guess. I mean, that's, but, but you want to talk about an amazing story. I mean, look at James Hinchcliffe. 
you know, a few years ago, you know, practicing at Indy hits the wall and has a, a piece of the suspension literally go into his body. Had it not been for the incredible IndyCar safety crew, he would have bled to death on the spot. They stopped that. He then had to go in the hospital, had to rehabilitate, took him a full year to come back. And he came back and won the pole at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. That's amazing. And, and then, then he finished second on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> so once again, if anybody who thinks IndyCar drivers are not athletes, I got news for you. These guys are amazing athletes. And, and, I, and I will say, you know, not just IndyCar, you know, Formula One, you know, sports car drivers I've known. These guys are amazing in terms of their workout regimes. You know, you look at it, look at the Daytona 500. You know, you're in a race that lasts four hours. The, the ability to be able to maintain and hold on to that steering wheel is absolutely spectacular. And the, the, like the mental or psychological strength that goes along with it, not just the physical strength, but... Well, you think about it. I mean, even under a yellow flag, you know, you, when, when the cars are slow to a degree, I mean, there's always things that have to, you know, you're talking to your crew, you're calculating this. You don't really get... A, it's not like, not like in basketball where you sit on the side, okay, you're still driving the car. Yeah. You can't hit the guy next to you. And, and people forget... You know, they think, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're not doing 20 miles an hour when they're the yellow. They're still doing 60, 75 miles an hour. And they're pit stopping, which is not an easy thing to do. Right, right. Well, let's move on to something else here. Uh, as you mentioned. By the way, I could talk cars. Oh, they all could, yeah. I mean, this could long, be a more episode. This is going to be the Geoholics after dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we met when I attended one of your uh you know, presentations about communication. And you've authored a book called Communicating at the Right Speed. So I definitely want to give you an opportunity to, you know, obviously not go through that book, uh, you know, page by page, but <laughs> I know there's some highlights in there that you can touch on that are going to be very beneficial to our listening audience. So um, first of all, I mean, I, 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 me reading the book, I actually kind of pulled some things out of there that, I think should be touched on. And first of all, communication is probably one of, if not the most important skill that we can master as, as human beings. And the costs of poor communication, you don't even realize it. It's, it's tremendous. Absolutely. And there was one research project that said that, that people and they call them knowledge workers, but in other words, not blue collar workers, but knowledge workers were losing three and a half hours of productivity every week, waiting for somebody to get back to them. Now you think about it, three and a half hours is, is almost four, which would mean a 10th of their work week is lost waiting for somebody to get back to communicate something. The cost of lost opportunity with poor communications is huge. And, and it's not just, okay, you can look at it from a corporate level, how much a company is losing. But then what's even more important is how much is a career being hampered by the fact that people aren't communicating properly? Um, you know, the, the, I saw a statistic, that, the, a research project that showed that 28% of CEO candidates lose the job because they communicate poorly in the job interview. <laughs> Almost a third of the candidates are losing the job. They could be great at what they do, but it's so obvious that they can't communicate that they lose the job before they ever get the opportunity. 60% of employees in this one survey said that they, they, they would support getting rid of their CEO because they don't communicate properly. Wow. 
I mean, that's a problem. If you're not communicating properly, when you're a CEO, you really only have one job. That's to facilitate everything going on around you. And if you can't have the various units communicating together, because really, I mean, what's collaboration? Collaboration is people communicating. And these days in the COVID world, when everybody's remote working, oh my gosh, it's even more complicated today. You know, and you can't just say, okay, here's a computer, go home and work. You know, there's, there's research, a Harvard study that showed that already remote workers before COVID felt isolated and left out. Hmm. Well, now we got even more, co- more workers remotely working, feeling isolated and left out, unless their managers, their companies are improving the communication tools, which is what I talk to people about all the time. All right. If you got remote workers, how can you improve the communication? And, 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 and you have to, it's kind of like, you know, um, if I was in high school drama and I remember they used to say, okay, when you're on the stage, you have to talk to the 11th or the 12th row. You can't talk to the people in the front row. And it's the same way with communicating when you're doing it remotely. You have to up your game. You have to do a better job of communicating to the people who are out there because they're the ones who want it the most. They can't hear you as well. They can't, they, they can't see what's going on. They can't, there's no water cooler left, right? You can't walk into the water cooler and go, hey, what happened in that meeting, by the way? <laughs> yep. Yeah, all good points. I mean, is it fair to say that Gosh, I mean, as you mentioned, with everybody working remotely and, you know, virtual meetings, Zoom meetings and everything else like that, it's, it's so important to, I guess, know and understand your audience or the person you're talking to, because not everybody communicates the exact same way. Not everybody values communication. The well, same. yeah, I mean, we, we all do it differently. And, and um, you know, I, I laugh because there's other research that shows that managers are never as good as they think they are. We all think we're this good when in reality we're down here. Um, so, you know, you have to think your communication is the same way. Um, th- there's research that shows generally when there is uh, something that goes wrong in the communication process, it's almost always, not almost always, but often the person giving the message, the person speaking, the person sending the message, which means if you're the receiver of the message, you're the listener, you're the reader, you have to assume the person who's talking to you isn't doing it right which means you have to work even harder to listen to what they're saying and to clarify at the back end, is this what you really meant? And you always hate to say, you know, that bluntly, but you really have to make sure that you do understand it because we all have different styles. Some people are very aggressive. Some people are very curt. Um, so there's actually a, a, uh, this one, uh, uh, it's a survey, so I'm a small survey where you can you know, get an assessment as to what your communication style is. Um, I, I, I'm what's called an intuitive communicator. Uh, I, I love the big picture. I can look on the horizon. I can make gut decisions. I'm great. Don't bore me with all those numbers. I don't, I don't care about them. I want to move 100 miles an hour. You know? <laughs> Whereas there's, there's functional communicators who they love the numbers. Not, they're not only going to show you the numbers, they're going to show you the math behind the numbers. They're probably going to bring in their calculus teacher from high school to explain to you how the numbers work. Functional people and intuitive communicators, we don't get along. We, we, you know, they want me to see all the numbers. I want to avoid the numbers. There's also um, personal communicators, people who, you know, they're, they're the touchy-feelies. They want to hold your hand. You know, they, they, they really drive, there's another form called analytical. They drive the analytical people crazy. But sometimes you need a personal communicator. Sometimes you want somebody who's going to look in your eyes. And sometimes you want that analytical person who's going to go, 
nope, nope, I think we need to make this without any personal you know, opinions at all. So it becomes, okay, what's your communication style? Then how do you adapt that to those around you without losing who you are? And, and would you say it's, it's uh, like a company is best suited if they have a good mixture of those different type of communicators as long as they're in the right positions? Absolutely. I, I mean, if you had a bunch of functional people, nothing would ever get done. If you had a bunch of intuitive people, we'd get a lot done and it would all fall apart because no one had the right numbers to, to back it all up. The more you have, but, but it's, you know, it's no different than any other form of diversity. You, know, you just have to appreciate what these other people bring to the table and say, okay, well, you know, you're going to slow things down a little bit, but maybe today we do need to slow it down. You know, the, the title of my book is called Communicating at the Right Speed, which obviously an homage to racing. But you know, I believe these days that there's, we have the ability to communicate so quickly that we try to do everything at the same speed. Everything has to go 100 miles an hour. When in fact, there's times when we need to slow it down. You know, there's times when, and the problem is, when we do everything at the same speed, we don't, we don't take a step back to gather more information when we should and slow the process down. But we also sometimes disregard true deadlines when things do need to move fast, when there is a crisis. Because we're humming, we're doing it all at the same speed. And we think we're doing it fast when in reality, we're just kind of, you know, thumbing our way through it. We're not slowing down when we need to. We're not speeding up when we need to. Don't treat it all the same. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, you know, immediate gratification, essentially, when it comes to communication and the technology behind that. And there's a section in your book where you talk about how communication is irreversible. And with email and things like that, you know, it's like before you hit send, you better think through this because <laughs> yep. it's irreversible. Yeah, and, and I, that's one of the big things I always point out is once you say it, you know, I mean, you, you may be able to apologize. You may be able to, you know, give some other facts. But once you've said it, it's out there. People can't unhear it unless they, you get lucky and they get hit by a bus and suddenly they have amnesia and they can't remember what you said to them the day before. Um, it, it's, it, and people can't read the inflection in your email. You were pretty witty when you wrote that comment. And I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten in my lifetime where I'm like, what did that guy just mean? You know, I, I mean, you, you put a wink emoji in. It's like, you, you know, because you, it's funny, because it's actually hypocritical, because you're, you're just winking, you didn't really mean what you just said, or you want to have an affair with me. I'm a little confused. Well, considering we're in Arizona and Jake just graduated from ASU, you have to mention Herm Edwards and just say, don't press send. <laughs> yeah. it, did he just boil it all down to that three words and that's it? You know, it, it's, it's just unfortunate that too many people, you know, in, in a fit of anger, just type it out and hit send. You know, I, I'm a big fan. You know, if you've got an, if you've got an email that, that you are doing because you're, you know, not happy, um, sit on it, write it, set it aside, come back to it. Five minutes, an hour later, whatever it may be. If you just type and hit send, you know, too often, there's not the least of which, you'll probably catch a few grammatical mistakes in there. You want to have at least look clean. But sometimes, you know, you come back the next day and you go, yeah, maybe I was a little harsh. And, and it goes back to communicating at the right speed. Just because you can communicate back right now doesn't mean you have to. Now, other times you do need to, that something's moving quickly and you need to make it clear that, you know what, this is a problem and we need to go this way and we need to do it now. Especially, you know, I deal in, I, I deal in crisis communication. So that's one of the ways I consult organizations. 
you know, when they have a crisis and then how to, how to deal with the crisis at that time. And, but, but as I always point out, and let's use a sports analogy, you know, in, in crisis communication, you have to move quickly, but there's, if, let's go to basketball. You're dribbling down the court. You got, you get to the top of the key and you've got your guys spread out. You take that moment where you bounce it once, you bounce it twice, and then you see that opening and you move to the right. You may pass to the right, you may pass to the left, you may go into the layup yourself. But how many times do you see that guy pause just slightly at the top of the key before he drives in? That's what you have to do in crisis communication. You gotta move quickly, but you still gotta take that moment to pause and go, do I go right, do I go left, or do I do it myself? Yeah, and would you say that uh, in a lot of cases, as especially like written forms of communication, less is more. Because like if you're, you know, like you mentioned typing up an email and again, I guess it goes back to the type of communicator that person is, but sometimes I'll re receive emails that are like four paragraphs long. And that whole thing could have been summarized in like two sentences, honestly. I mean, it just depends upon the communication you're doing. You know, I go back to the one size doesn't fit all. There's times when you do need to have it all laid out. You do need four paragraphs, but there's times. And once again, I go back to, I'm that intuitive communicator. I don't want four paragraphs with a lot of numbers in it. Yeah. Um, but there's times when you absolutely do need that, but there's times when you need to go, look, you know, and, and even better, there's times when you need to say one, two sentences, call me and I'll explain the rest. The reality is we all communicate better when we're talking. We all communicate even better when we're talking face to face. Now I realize in this world it's not always possible, you know, but anytime you can move it up to the next level, you're always going to be better off. It doesn't mean you can't get it. I mean, you, know, you, you can text and get a message across, but there's times when you need to bump it up to that next level. It goes, it goes back to my point. One size doesn't fit all. Communicate at the right speed for the right situation and the right time. Yeah. Seeing as we're all in this Zoom world now and we're not communicating necessarily face-to-face, -face, we can see each other and hear each other. It's a little different. I may uh, throw out a free plug, don't get used to it. The book, Communicating at the Right Speed, is available on Amazon, $14.99, and there is a copy coming to the nerdery. <laughs> shortly after this conversation, I already hopped on and ordered it. <laughs> so there, there is a, a, there's a research project that was done that looked at um, – and, and, you know, this is always research, how, 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 how good is the research? But it looked at the number of ideas that came out of a meeting uh, that was done in person versus a virtual meeting. And I know this is going to come as a big shock, but there were, according to this research project, there were fewer ideas that came out of the virtual meeting instead of the in-person meeting. You know, it, it, and once again, we live in a COVID world now. We're going to do a lot more virtual meetings. Mm -hmm. It just means we're going to have to work harder to make sure that, that have we included everybody, that, you know, have we listened to everybody? Have we brought everybody's opinions in? Just because somebody didn't say anything, did it mean they didn't have an opinion? Maybe, they, you know, it's been interesting at this U.S. Supreme Court, you know, they've been doing um, telephone arguments now where they're, 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 they're not in the same building anymore. And uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, who traditionally was very quiet during all of the hearings, he wouldn't say a lot, is now asking all these questions by telephone during these hearings for the Supreme Court. It's great to suddenly hear him in, you know, kind of going a bit, but I give him a lot of credit because he's figured out that the way he used to do it isn't functional in this new world. And that's what we all have to do. We have to figure out how can we make it more effective to communicate in a virtual COVID world. I think one challenge I have personally is when I'm in a, like at the office in a meeting with, you know, a half a dozen people, you know, there's different forms of communication, obviously. And I think body language is a big one. 
And when you're in person and you're having a discussion and you can see how kind of people react and, you know, with their hands, their expressions, whatever, that is something you definitely don't have the, uh, the ability to really build off of when you're having all these virtual meetings. Well, in side glances, how many times have you been in a meeting where someone's talking and you're looking at somebody off to the side going, should I, shouldn't I? They're giving you the eyes going yes or no, whatever it may be. You, you don't get that during, during virtual meetings. Yeah, so people may be a little, um, I don't know, a little more hesitant to communicate virtually just because they don't have the, uh, you know, the luxury of having some of those other, um, other, other, other key communication uh, tells, you know. You know, one of the critical things, too, is, you know, because you can't see the people around you, um, you have to listen more. Um, you know, we have a tendency to want to fill the dead air. Um, you know, managers have a tendency to want to speak, you know, people, when they have an idea, they want to talk. And, you know, some people are, some people just go on and on and some people are very concise. Um, you know, we have to have the ability to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to talk for 30 seconds or I'm going to talk for a minute. I'm talk whatever. I'm going to make my point, make it as concise as I possibly can. And then I need to listen. You know, you have to be an active listener. You have to think, what am I doing? And, and, you know, did I hear Bob? Did I hear Sue? Did I hear Mary? Did I hear Armando? Did I hear all these people in the meeting? How can I bring them all in and make sure that they're heard? And, you know, it's the person who's running the meeting. It's the person who's the manager. Um, but the reality is we can all do that. It doesn't matter who we are in the meeting. If you know somebody, you know, is, hasn't been heard, you can say, hey, you know, Dave, I haven't heard from you. What do you have to say? Yeah, yeah, great point. Where does, um, this, I guess this strays a little bit from communication, but I know like personal branding is something else that you like to present on. Um, tell us a little bit about that and the importance of it. Well, I think personal branding is huge. You know, the whole time, uh, I'll go back to my years at Channel 12. Um, you know, I worked at Channel 12 here in town in Phoenix for 31 years. And it was a great TV station, wonderful group of people. Um, great job, great place. Um, you know, I, a couple of subtle things I did. And, and this is, you know, once again, I, I, I haven't worked there for over a decade. Um, but like, for example, I always wore a suit and tie. That was my brand. That was, I wanted a crisp look. When guys, when guys are starting to wear polo shirts and no jackets, I'm like, nope, I'm going to be distinctive. I'm going to be the guy always in the, in the tie. At the very least in the tie, you know, it's Arizona. We're not always going to wear a coat, but I was always in the tie. And then I always made it a point when I wrote my script out, I always made it a point that when they said my name, they said my full name, Rick DeBrule. Didn't say Rick, didn't say Big Rick. It didn't say our consumer guy, whatever it may be. It said Rick DeBrule. And those two little things, believe it or not, helped develop a brand for me over a period of time. It, it's a running joke in my family. My wife calls me Rick DeBrule. <laughs> I, I, when, I, when I went to work at this one location at one point in time, one, one of the people I work with said, you know, it's hard not to call you Rick DeBrule because I'm so used to, you, you are not just Rick. And, and it's like, well, there you go. My branding worked. So figure out what your brand is. And it can be whatever you want. If you're the guy in the loud, ugly jacket, be the guy in the loud, ugly jacket, you know? Um, you know, the other thing is you know, people talk about charisma. Charisma is a huge thing, especially in leadership. And, and charisma is all about communicating who and what you are. So you can increase your charisma, which then increases your brand power by simply listening to people. Because if you, if you look at what, how people define charisma. First off, they talk about it as a magical thing. It's so hard to define. But people usually say, oh, it's, 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 it's their stature. It's the way they present themselves. Okay, how did you dress this morning? You're communicating something with what you put on today. 
it doesn't matter what it is. If it's your brand, it's your brand. If you're the guy in the goofy t-shirt, that's fine. If you're the guy in the suit, that's fine. But dress intentionally for whatever workplace you're going into. Um, and then it becomes, how do you communicate your ideas? The way you communicate. And more importantly, it's the way you listen. Most people, when, you, when, when people talk about charisma and people talk about charismatic people, charismatic leaders, it's almost always someone who listens to them and makes them feel important. So it's that ability to listen, it's ability to present your brand, it's ability to communicate ideas. Communicating ideas is huge. Ideas are a dime a dozen. A lot of people have ideas. If you can't communicate your idea, I got news for you, you're not there. So I think having a personal brand is huge and you wanna have an intentional brand. And, and once again, be whatever it is. If you're the guy with the goofy hat with a funny haircut out the side, that's great. Be that brand, own it. But at some point in time, most people don't think of what their brand is. And, you know, if you're just, everybody's different. You know, if, if you want to move up the corporate ladder, then you're probably going to have to think about that hard. If you're happy, you know, I'm, I'm a guy working in my back, you know, do, doing something simple and I don't just want to be what I am. Great. But I still believe you can always have a personal brand. At the very least, it's something that you can have fun with. I know one guy that always wears a Hawaiian shirt everywhere he goes. Is his name Andy Reid? No, <laughs> when but, you, said you know, I mean, the... it, people like that. They just wear they wear that that Hawaiian shirt, and, and and it's his it's his thing. And he's not on TV. He's not a you know he's not a corporate climber. He just loves wearing his Hawaiian shirts. Well, it's memorable. Yeah, it's it, trust me. I once saw him without a Hawaiian shirt. I'm like, do I know you? Yep. <laughs> when you mentioned the goofy hat with the hair sticking out, I immediately thought of myself in high school, but don't, <laughs> don't pass that on to anybody else. I'm going to keep that a secret among us. We're in the trust. We all camp. had longer hair in high school. Yeah, right. Uh, beyond the personal branding, let's, let's go on to some uh, important stuff. Your involvement with St. Joseph the Worker. Yeah, I mean, I've been really fortunate over the years. I've been involved with some great organizations, uh, you know, everything from Big Brothers to, I, I can't even, you know, I, the nature of being in TV, you get associated with a lot of organizations and it's been great, uh, Boys and Girls Club, all that kind of stuff. Um, last month, I actually joined the board of St. Joseph the Worker. And if you don't know what St. Joseph the Worker is here in Arizona, it's a great organization. And what they do is they help people who are, who are homeless, who are in, in financial distress, they help these people find work. And it's not just that they say, here's a job, go out and get it. They give them the training, they, give them the, they help them figure out how to build their resume. They help them figure out, they'll give them bus passes to get to the interviews. They've got a, cl a clothing closet, they can borrow clothes to get to the interview or borrow clothes so that they can use on the job. It's just such a great organization. And, and I look at the number of people that they help every year. Years ago, it's just in the hundreds. Now it's, you know, 3,500 people got a job last year through St. Joseph the Worker. And you realize now when, when, when the situation during COVID where, you know, so many people have been laid off, the ability to, to have an organization like St. Joseph the Worker that will be able to help find people work is tremendous. And, and once again, it's not enough to say, here's a job, go get it. Some people need some support to get to that point. And so, you know, St. Joseph the Worker works with them. Sometimes it's as simple as making sure they have an address or a phone number that the employer can potentially call back to. And, and you know, I, I started working with St. Joseph the Worker about 13 years ago doing some volunteer work at some of their events. I would emcee some of their events for them. And every year I would hear these amazing stories from these people who had just been helped by St. Joseph the Worker. You know, they've got a bell in the office. They ring every time somebody gets a job. It's like when an angel gets his wing kind of thing. 
and, and I mean, it, it, it's so, you know, such a great feeling to think that these people who were homeless potentially now have what they need to get themselves off the street. Because let's face it, if you don't have a job, if you don't have an income coming in, it, it's impossible to find a place to, to live, right? I mean, you might find a homeless shelter for a period of time, but if you can't get a job and if you can't have a job and keep a job, and get that income coming in, you're going to be back out on the streets. And that's what St. Joseph, and, and, and St. Joseph, once again, I'll really, it's really critical. They prepare these people so that when they get the job, they don't flush out. They're, they're prepared. They go in. They make sure that they have the skills necessary. Not, not a training program. They just make sure that, that they know what's expected of them. When they take the job, they have success. They be prof- they're professional. They wear their suits. They go by their full name, Rick DeBrule. All that <laughs> stuff. You but, create a brand, whatever it may be. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely brings in mind the whole uh, give a man a fish, eats for a day, teach a man a fish, eats for a lifetime, right? Absolutely. That sums it up. And, and it is, once again, you know, the, the St. Joseph the Worker here in Arizona, I believe, is the largest one in the country. And, and they just do an amazing job. And, and what's really interesting is they actually – six months ago had more jobs than they had people to get the job, to take the jobs. But they didn't want to send people out unless they were prepared. You can't send an employer somebody who's going to say, well, the guy washed out two days later. You got to get the person capable and ready to be able to take the job. And that's where St. Joseph does such an amazing job. Wow. How, um, I, you know, I'm a firm believer that anybody who's been successful in anything in their life at some point in their career, um, they've had a good mentor or mentors. You'd like to give our guests an opportunity to highlight those folks. Are there, are there, is there a mentor or mentors that you'd like to uh, mention that helped you throughout your career? I'm really fortunate. I've had a lot of them. I'll give two quick shout outs. The first one was a journalism professor in, in college. I went to college not meaning to go into journalism. I wanted to get into racing so I went into a journalism program because advertising was a concentration within journalism. And I thought advertising would be the way I'd get in, into racing, you know? And then I discovered journalism's a lot of fun. And so we had this one, in, one professor, his name was Jim Hayes, off the charts, just great. I mean, I'll never forget, he, he filled in for the last couple of weeks of us, the first semester class that I took in, in reporting. And I'd been getting an A, I'm doing fine. And he sends his paper back and it's just covered in red. And I was like, holy cow, what just happened? And he's like, I realized Jim was pushing and Mr. Hayes was pushing you constantly. At the bottom of every paper it would always say, see me. And, and I'll tell you one quick story. He, it, when I was taking the advanced reporting class and the guys next to me are getting A's and I'm getting a C. And, and you know, I think I'm working hard. So I went into him and I said, you know, why is Dave and Bob, why are they getting A's and I'm getting a C? And he looked at me and he said, well, Dave is going to go into the family lumber business. His family just wants him to get a degree. So he's not going to, he's going to go into lumber. And Bob, Bob's going to be a priest. He just wants this for communication skills. And he leaned forward. He got about an inch away from my face. And he said, you're going to have to make your living at this. So you better be pretty damn good. And I went, oh, okay. I got a B in that class. And I was so proud of myself. So that's number one. Number two was the person who hired me to work in Phoenix. His name is uh, Al Buck. I'm still uh, in touch with him today. He lives in Wichita, Kansas. He's long since retired. Great guy. Great mentor. One more quick story. I'm doing a live shot at the Phoenix Police Department. 
It's a story about how a police officer had accidentally shot a teenager. There was an inquest going on. You know, were they, what were they going to do to, to, to uh, you know, to have some type of penalty associated with it? At noon, I said, still no word on the fate of this detective. Five o'clock, still no word on the fate of this detective. Six o'clock, still no word. I go live, still no word on the fate of detective. And I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> I looked at the camera and I just stared. And, you know, maybe it was five, 10 seconds, whatever, but it seemed like forever. The, the reporter who was standing next to me working for Channel 3 said, I really wanted to just tell you out loud, but I couldn't do it. I finally, you know, got out the name, but it was just a horrible, horrible situation, you know, just for TV. I'm a young rookie reporter. I get back to my desk that night after I do in the live show, you know, the news director's gone, everybody's gone, and there's a note in my typewriter. Let's go back to communication. And it says, it's from the news director, my boss, and it says, there we've seen it, your worst moment in television, it will get better from here. And what that meant was, I saw it, it looked bad, and you'll survive. And it was for, you know, a 24-year-old reporter, it was the perfect thing I needed. Because I, you know, he couldn't ignore it. We had, we had to, you know, it was the elephant in the room, it was bad. But he had to give me feelings that I could go on and do better. So two mentors I can name who both were, were great at the time. That five seconds had to feel like an eternity. Oh, trust me. even imagine. Trust me. I, to me, it felt like an hour. I mean, just, you know, just sit there sometime and look at somebody in the face and count out to five or 10. I, I, don't, I don't know how long it was, but it just seemed like forever. And finally, finally, I blurted out half the name just as the producer yelled in my ear the other half of the name. It was, <laughs> it was pretty bad. And then, of course, I screwed up the rest of the live shot because it was so bad. Yeah. And now your book is communicating at the right speed. We've gone over that. But the life story of Rick DeBruel, what would the autobiography be called? And before you answer that, who would play in the movie as well? Um, you know, I've actually been asked this question before, and it's pretty cliche. But honestly, this is the title I would use, which is It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, I have been so fortunate. I, I can't tell you on every level. You know, I, I, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show The Wonder Years. That was my childhood. I grew up, I was the same age as that kid in that TV show at that point in time. I had a great family, you know, I have four brothers and sisters and, and you know, we have our, our trials and tribulations over time, but you know, great, great family. I, I'm fortunate, I've had one girlfriend my entire life. I married my high school sweetheart. You know, we started dating on her 16th birthday and married the week after we graduated from college when we were 21. Um, you know, I've got two great kids. I, I've had amazing jobs. The fact that I worked at, in TV news was for 31 years at the same TV station is epic. And then to have a hobby that people pay me to travel around the world covering auto racing, what a scam. You know, I, I, and, and, and the stories I've gotten to do, I mean, I, you know, I've gotten to fly a fighter jet. I've gotten to, I got to go down to the Karshner Caverns, which is these caverns out in Southeast Arizona, before they were, before they were open to the public. We went in the way that the cave discoverers went in, before it had even been blown out to be a state park. Went to the Vatican to cover stories. I, I did this one, I went to Korea to cover the, well, both to cover the fact that the, the Olympics were coming, but to do story on these kids who come from Korea to the United States for heart operations. We ended up bringing back two kids with us, one of whom was a, a nine-year-old boy. His name was Sundu, who needed a heart operation and needed so badly that, that when he arrived in the United States, 
he got the heart operation right away, immediately when he arrived here. He was an orphan living in a Buddhist monastery. We're on our way to the airport and the boy is in one car and I'm in another. And um, the, uh, the, the Buddhist monks are arguing with my interpreter. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And finally, the, the interpreter turns to me and says, they want you to find the boy a good home. I'm like, what? I'm like, do I look like an adoption agency? And they're like, well, he's an orphan. Orphans in Korea, you know, get the short, short end of the stick. You need to find him a good home. And, and it, this is a longer story, but he ends up staying with, with a foster family that was amazing. They already had eight adopted kids from different countries, all with health problems. He ended up being adopted by this family. So his name is Sundu. Today, his name is Jay Atherton, and he's an architect living here in Phoenix. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, and then to, to add to your story, to make it even more of a wonderful life, to go off of the Wonder Years, at least you're not a Jets fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is I, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I was, I, I was a Dodger fan just because I was in L.A., but I was really more of an Angels fan. Um, I really didn't know anything about football or basketball. I mean, I, you know, the Rams were there and I paid a little bit of attention to them. But when I moved to Phoenix, boy, I got to tell you, I left everything behind. When the D-backs arrived, I, I went on board D-backs all the way. I've been a season ticket holder since day one. You know, I'm a fan of the Cardinals, the Suns, ASU. I, and I believe that stand in the place where you live, as R.E.M. would say, and I support my hometown teams. We'll see, we'll see you at one of these games at the D-backs when – you know, if and when we ever get back there. As you see, I got the D-Bags hat on. I knew you were coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a huge D-Bag fan. Like I say, I've been season ticket holder since day one. And, you know, I was there for – I wasn't there for the seventh game of the World Series only because I was at a race in California that got delayed by rain that morning. And literally at, at that morning, we had to sell the tickets to somebody because I wasn't going to get home in time for the start of it. And I, I drove home and made it. I got, got to Phoenix in time to saw, saw, see the beginning of the ninth inning and watched it on TV at home. I'm sure, I'm sure you made your season ticket money all back off of that. I, I actually, I sold two games that year and paid for my entire season ticket for the next year. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I believe that Kent froze up on us again. So I'm going to go from here and ask you one quick question uh, that we ask everybody. Do you have a mantra that you live by? Uh, this is an inside joke in my family. And the mantra, uh, mantra is, it's not a tumor. It's I don't not know if you've ever seen the movie Kindergarten, Kindergarten Cop. Yes. A great scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger is in, in, you know, in with the kids. He says he's got a headache. And one of the kids goes, is it a tumor? And, and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger goes, it's not a tumor. <laughs> it could um, be a tumor and you could die. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you understand my wife actually works at a hospital. She deals in oncology patients. She counsels oncology patients. So tumors are a big deal in our family. But so often, you know, you have to understand that when something goes wrong, you know, it's not the end of the world. It, it's, you have to take a step back and go, you know what? It's not a tumor. It, it's a problem, but it's not a horrible problem. It's something that can be, you know, survived, you know. It, 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 I mean, don't get me wrong, when it's a tumor, it's a tumor. And that, that going back to like communicating at the right speed, sometimes you do need to accept when things are bad. But if we treat everything the same way, then when things are bad, it, you don't know how to react. So a lot of times we just have to sit back and go, you know what? It's not as bad as you think it is. You'll survive. 
That's pretty solid. I'm going to have to mention that one to the wife. We're, we're personally fans of that old kindergarten cop <laughs> movie. So. It's a great uh, scene. I absolutely love what he goes. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor. Well, with that answer, we can't really top it. I, I think we've covered it all. Um, do you have any parting words? Anything you want to add before we let you go that we haven't touched on yet? I know it's been quite the adventure. So I, just real briefly, you know, since this is Geoholics, my personal weird hobby is I collect antique maps. I, I, my, my oldest map is from 1520. Uh, they go up to the 1600s, the 1700s. I have the first map of Arizona that shows its correct boundaries and the first four counties is from 1867. Um, I'm, I am a geography geek. We can, we can definitely appreciate that. And, uh, We'll, we'll have to have you back. Hopefully in a better uh, situation where maybe you can bring these maps that are 400 plus years or 600 years old and we can oogle them and drool over them, you know, under glass, of course. But <laughs> no, that is an excellent hobby to have. Uh, one that me personally, I can respect. I don't, I don't know about Jake so much, but. Uh, no, I think it's cool. I'm, I'm all about that geography stuff. So, no, thank you so much, Rick, for, for taking the time doing this. I know it's this whole COVID Zoom thing is not ideal, but uh, I said it before, I'll say it again. You got a hell of a radio and television voice. <laughs> you make, you give me something to aspire to. I'm glad I went to communications school, not that uh, telecommunications and all that good stuff, because there's no way I could have taken your job over at, at Channel 12. Well, you know, the good news is somebody pays me to talk and apparently they can hear me. So that's a good sign. That's awesome. Well, all right. With this one, Delphi Delph is out. Uh, I'm going to put a bow on it. We'll wrap it up. Thank you again, Rick. Uh, we're going to thank everybody for listening, their continued support during this COVID-19 uh, Zoom meeting fun times. We couldn't do it without them. Uh, the friends of the program, check them out. Uh, all their websites. Check us out at thegeoholics.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Search the Geoholics on Google, wherever else. Uh, we have our app that was built by Justin Farrow. We're on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, all of the above. Anywhere you listen to a podcast, we're there. Jake's on it. Uh, if you want to be a future guest or have any questions for us, want to be a friend of the program, email us at info at thegeoholics.com. We're going to have the Moody Blues take us out in honor of Rick's choice, just a singer in a rock and roll band. Check out all their music on Spotify and Apple Music. They are Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. And remember, everybody, during these times, support local, stay safe, and healthy. Thanks again to our friends of the program. Please be sure to check out Land Surveyors United at landsurveyorsunited.com, Unifly at unifly.arrow, Bad Elf at bad-elf.com, and Parkland College at parkland.edu forward slash surveying.